Our sermon text for this morning uh, comes from the book of Acts. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you're able, I'd ask you to rise again for the hearing of God's holy word. And we'll read from the book of Acts in Jesus' holy name. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles him he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord God, your word is truth, and I pray that you would sanctify us by that truth. Lord, as we now look at the account of the ascension from the book of Acts, pray that you would show us our sinfulness and need for a Savior, and point us once again to the finished work of Christ for us. Lord, today strengthen our faith, that we might be used as your servants to spread your gospel. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what we have here in our sermon text today, in these first few verses of Acts, is Luke's account of the ascension of Jesus Christ. This isn't the only place in Scripture that the ascension of Christ is described, and interestingly, it's not even the only place that Luke records the ascension. Luke ends his gospel, which is also written to this same Theophilus, with these words. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. What Luke records in his gospel is really kind of just a teaser for the next book, for what would come in the book of Acts. It's almost like one of those previews that comes in the middle of the credits in a Marvel movie. He doesn't record a lot of details in the gospel, simply that Jesus ascended to heaven, that his disciples worshipped him, and they went back to Jerusalem praising God. The accounts we have in the, in the book of Acts are much fuller and richer. Luke adds more details here in the book of Acts that he didn't have at the end of his gospel. Luke begins in the book of Acts with just a little bit of background. He tells us in verse 3 that during the 40 days from the resurrection of Christ to his ascension, Jesus appeared to many different people, and he also offered them many proofs that he had truly died and risen so they might come to believe and trust in him and so be saved. And then he tells that the disciples, or, and then Jesus tells the disciples that they're supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait there until they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
We're going to remember these events next week as we celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, when God gave the Holy Spirit to the Twelve and gave them the ability to speak in tongues so they might communicate the gospel to those who were gathered that day, that they might hear it and believe as well. After that, we get to the actual events right around the ascension of Christ. The disciples ask one last question of Jesus. They want to know if this is going to be the time that Jesus restores the kingdom to Israel. The events that happened 40 days earlier with the resurrection of Christ would have confirmed to the disciples that this Jesus was truly the Messiah that God had promised to send. And he had already fulfilled many of the promises uh, that had been given about the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. But there were still things that God had promised about the Messiah that the disciples and others were still waiting for Jesus to do. Most specifically, we have to remember the promise that came uh, to King David, what we call the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that he would raise up one of the descendants of David and that he would establish his kingdom forever. Because of that promise and many others throughout the Old Testament, there was this expectation that when God finally sent his Messiah, when he sent his anointed one, that one of the things the Messiah would do is overthrow the government that controlled Israel at the time. In the case of the first century, they were looking for freedom from the Roman Empire. There was this expectation that the Messiah would overthrow that evil and oppressive Roman regime and that the nation of Israel would be restored to its former glory, to something even greater than it had been in the days of King David and King Solomon. Now, we know this wasn't the role of the Messiah, at least in his first advent. The kingdom that God promised to King David wasn't a restoration of the physical nation of Israel, but instead it was the promise of Christ's reign at the right hand of the Father that began at his ascension, and will continue on forevermore. You see, Jesus is on the throne. He truly and completely rules and reigns, but his reign is going to be something that will be experienced and seen by us more fully once he returns. Once he comes back to judge both the living and the dead, as we confessed in the creed this morning, when he comes back and makes all things new, we're going to experience and see that reign of Christ in a much greater way. The disciples didn't yet understand this, and so they were still expecting that restored physical kingdom of Israel with Jesus seated on a physical throne. And that's why they ask what they do here in Acts. Jesus' response to them lets them know first that they were mistaken about their expectations of a restored physical kingdom. And it also tells them that the true fulfillment of that promise to King David which would come at the return of Christ in glory to make all things right, that wasn't something that they got to know the timing of. The return of Christ would be soon, at least from God's perspective, but it would also come as a complete surprise. And when Scripture talks about the return of Christ, it makes pretty clear that we don't get to know when it's going to happen. In Matthew 24, it says this, But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but the Father only. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3 records, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And Revelation 3 says, remember when you received and what you heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I come like a thief in the night and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You see, we simply don't get to know when Jesus is going to return. And we really shouldn't be wasting our time trying to figure it out. If the timing of the return of Christ was a puzzle that we just had to slide the pieces into the right spots to figure out, well, then God would have given us the clues that we needed to do it and told us to do so. But we don't have any of these things in Holy Scripture. We don't even get good hints about when Christ might return. The very best of what we get comes from Matthew chapter 24, when the disciples asked, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them by saying, See that no one leads you astray, for many come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. See, wars, rumors of war, nations and kingdoms rising up against other nations of kingdoms, famines, earthquakes, even false Christs rising up to lead people astray. Jesus tells us that these things are the sign of the times, the signs that he will return. But he also tells us that these are only the beginning of the birth pains. They're the early warning that Jesus is coming back and not the sign that he'll be back this century, decade, year, or month. To make this an even worse clue for us in predicting the timing of the return of Christ, all of the things that Jesus mentions have been happening since the time of his ascension to the right hand of the Father. You see, these signs of the times that Jesus gives to us, they serve to point us to the fact that Christ is returning and we need to be ready. We don't know when it's going to happen. We can't know. We shouldn't even try to figure it out. But instead, we should make sure that we are prepared for it whenever it comes. Whether it happens later this morning or in five years or in 500 years, we have no idea when Christ will return, and we can't know. But we have his promise that he is going to come back. With Jesus' words in Acts 1, he lets both us and the disciples know that the date and time of his return aren't something for us to dwell on. Knowing that it's going to happen and that, and that it will certainly come at a time that we don't expect is enough for us. And really, that knowledge is a gift of God, and it's a gift that serves us in two very important ways. The first way that it serves us as Christians is it should give us comfort and peace, it should give us hope. In the midst of this broken world that is filled with sin and struggles and pain and suffering and death and every other manner of brokenness, we have a promise from Christ that this world is not our home, that this life is not all that there is. 
For us who are Christians, the return of Christ is the greatest hope that we can have. Because for us, the day he returns is the day when sin, pain, suffering, death, and loss all come to an end forever, and we enter our eternal rest with our God and King. The second thing that this knowledge should do for us, that Christ is returning soon and in a time that we do not know, is it should give us urgency. We all know people who aren't believers in Christ, or at least I assume that we do. We all know people who, when that final day comes, for them, it's not going to be a day that they've longed for and waited for and hoped for. For them, it's not going to be the day when they're welcomed into their eternal rest and peace with their Lord and King. Instead, it will be the day of judgment where they stand condemned already before the Lord in their sins and trespasses. For them, it'll be the day when they are sentenced to the fate that all of us deserve because of our sin, being separated eternally from God in hell. And so this knowledge that Christ is surely coming back should serve to encourage us to point others to the same forgiveness and hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Not surprisingly, in the Gospel of Acts, this is the next thing that Jesus talks to his disciples about. He tells them that it won't be long before they receive power uh, when they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when they are baptized with the Spirit, they will become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They'll start sharing the Gospel with the people who are right next to them in Jerusalem. And then the entire southern kingdom of Israel and Judea They'll move on even to their hated enemies, the Samaritans, and share the gospel there and finally end up sharing the gospel with the entire Gentile world. The gospel was not something they were to hoard and keep to themselves. Instead, everything Jesus accomplished with his perfect and sinless life, with his sacrificial death and resurrection, they were done for all people in all places at all times. And the disciples were commissioned to bring it there, just as we have been. After that, Jesus ascended to heaven, and the disciples saw him lifted up and taken into a cloud out of their sight. We often have this misconception that at the ascension, Jesus pulled a superman going up, up, and away. But in fact, it was more of an up, up, and out. Jesus might have left his this earth in his physical body, but that doesn't mean that Jesus has left us all alone. He promises that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there among us. It is Christ who speaks to us through his word. He is the one who meets us in the waters of holy baptism, washing not dirt from our bodies, but sin. And he gives to us his holy body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins at the Lord's table. You see, Jesus hasn't left us alone but instead continues to come to us through word and sacrament. And that's the only reason that the sharing of the faith can be effective. You see, it isn't our skills or abilities that that bring people to a saving faith in, in Jesus Christ. Instead, as we share the gospel with others, the Holy Spirit delivers what Christ has accomplished and calls them to faith. God has promised that his word does not return void, but instead bears fruit because of that work of the Holy Spirit. You and I, we haven't been called to save others because Jesus already did that for us. But we have been called to faithfully plant the seeds of the gospel and to water them when we have the opportunities to do so. 
and then to trust that God will bring the growth in faith, just as he did for you and I. So rest and trust in those same promises that God has called us to share with our neighbors, that there is redemption and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Long for Christ's return and live in light of his mercies, always pointing others to that same hope that we have found in our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of the ascension in Acts chapter 1. We thank you that at your ascension, ascension, you didn't just leave us to fend for ourselves, but instead that you continue to come to us through word and sacrament. Lord, help us to be faithful with the gift that you have given us, to share it with others and to point others to the finished work of Christ for them. We pray these things, Lord, in your holy name. Amen.